Hello, fellow Kentuckians and other friends, and welcome to a new edition of my old Kentucky podcast. My name is Robert Connie, and joining me, as always, is Jasmine Smith. Jasmine, how are you today? I'm doing well, Robert. How are you? Doing very, very well. Today, we have a guest on the show. It's Derek Pinwell. He's running for Kentucky House. He is most likely running in District 31. That's where his address is in the new maps. Uh, but for the past half year or so, he had been running in the old District 36. So he's somebody who declared his candidacy about a, you know six, eight months ago, had been kind of running. And then when the maps came out, he was basically running in a whole new district. So we talked to him a little bit about that experience. And then also kind of just about what he believes. He is a, a minister. He's the, the pastor at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church, which is in the Highlands, not that far from my house, but he actually lives in the East End. So we talked to him about the connections between his faith and his politics. I, I, you know, he's he's a very interesting person. He's a very cool guy. I've known him socially a little bit before he was running, and I'm excited that he's running. Um, and I was very happy to get the chance to talk to him. Uh, how did you feel like the interview went, Jasmine? Yeah, I thought it went really well, and it... I thought it was really cool to hear from a minister who's running for office. You know, that's not something that we get to talk about every day. You know, we've talked to Kelly Flood before, um, but that's been a little while. So it was really nice to talk to him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, uh, that was that was very cool. Hopefully, you know, with Kelly Flood retiring this year, if, if he manages to make it to the legislature, he would, you know, replace her as, I guess, the uh, the Democratic reverend. He does have a primary, and we will be talking to his primary opponent, we hope, next week. So uh, stay tuned for that as well. Uh, she's also a candidate that a lot of people are excited about. So we're in it now, Jasmine. We're talking to all these state house people, state mm-hmm. senate people. So that is what, you know, we'll be doing in, a, in large part for the next next little bit until May. But we have lots of stuff to talk about. About. The, the legislature met several times between the last time we've talked and now we're going to talk about all the things that have happened since then. Jasmine's going to talk a little bit about a new entrant to the Lexington mayoral race, somebody who is a little bit higher profile, somebody that we both heard of before. And then we're going to be talking a little bit about COVID. So without any further ado, let's get started. So, Jasmine, after a four-day weekend, when we learned that about one in three Republican members of the House had COVID... The legislature was back in session on Tuesday. Some bills got passed and some other bills were posted for passage. And when just looking at all of the bills that kind of looks like that there's going to be movement on this week, three legislators kind of rose to the surface as people that I think are are making a push to get a bunch of bills passed early in the session. Two of them are Republican senators, Ralph Alvarado and Donald Douglas. But another one is Lisa Wilner, a Democrat in the House, who is uh, on her way to potentially having three bills, which she was a major push for, uh, mm-hmm. passed. So, you know, that's a little surprising, Lisa Wilner being a member of the Super Minority Democratic Caucus, getting work done. But she had three bills that she sponsored that either have already passed the House or are posted for passage today. I think the House is not yet met today, but they're, well, as we're recording here at 6 o'clock, but, but they, they are supposed to be passed today. So we'll see what happens. Um, You know, of course, she's a Democrat, so she's not the chief sponsor on any of these pieces of legislation. But one of the things that we know from talking to her several times is that she's a former member of the JCPS school board and she is a doctor of psychology. So when you hear about these bills, you'll, I think, understand that she's a major driving force behind all of them. So the first one is HB 44. And Bobby McCool of Van Leer in Eastern Kentucky, he's the chief sponsor of this bill. And this bill allows for school attendance policies to take into account mental and behavioral health. There was plenty of testimony from from students about this issue, um, something that, you know, I wish it had existed when I was in school, and I'm really happy. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, if, if, it, if it passes, I think it's a great thing um, that, that really will meet the needs of students in the future. 
um, you know, the bill passed without any nay votes, which I mean really speaks to the ability of uh, you know, Dr. Wilner and, and, you know, Representative McCool to really work with their caucuses to understand that this is something that should have bipartisan support, and it mm-hmm. did. So in addition to, to Bobby McCool, Ken Fleming, Jim Gooch, Jerry Miller, Ed Massey, Steve Sheldon, and Bill Wesley joined as Republican co-sponsors. And then Joni Jenkins, Ruth Ann Palumbo, Tina Bojanowski, Nima Kolkarni, Patty Minter, Buddy Wheatley, Rachel Roberts, and Pan Stevenson joined Rep- Representative Wilner as co-sponsors on the Democratic side. So there are a lot of people co-sponsoring this legislation. I think a lot of people in the House are pretty excited about this piece of legislation. It's obviously one of the first things they, that they passed. Um, so, I mean, that's great. I think it's cool. It's a good bill. Uh, and, and I'm really hoping that the Senate agrees. So we'll see what happens, who is uh, pushing for it to get passed through that chamber. I think it likely will have a harder time. I think the folks in the Senate are a little bit more conservative than the folks in the House. But, you know, we'll see what the Republicans who push for this legislation are able to do. So that was HB 44. Very exciting stuff. Good things uh, happening uh, with that bill. The next one we wanted to talk about is HB 237. This is a bill that deals with continuing education requirements for psychologists. Uh, and people who can be psychologists, might be psychologists in the future. So this bill ensures that continuing education includes education about social and cultural factors that impact health, functioning, and quality of life. And it also allows individuals with just a master's degree equivalency who are furthering their education to qualify for a psychologist's license. So kind of widening the scope of who can get a license to practice psychology and kind of changing what counts and what is required uh, for continuing education. Um, Kim Mosier is the chief sponsor of this legislation, and Lisa Wilner is the only other co-sponsor. This is a pretty detailed, a pretty in-the-weeds bill, but, I mean, you can clearly see Representative Wilner's fingerprints on it as this is her profession. It's what she, she's a psychologist, so I'm not, I would not be surprised if she was one of the main driving forces behind this bill. But also kudos to Representative uh, Mosier for, for helping her get this through the legislature. The last one I wanted to talk about with respect to Lisa Wilner is HB 127. So so this bill makes alterations to when a person can be given court-ordered mental health treatment. So Jasmine, you probably know more about this than I do or how this actually works in, in practical matters. But the language in the statute is, is changed to say that a patient will be evaluated and not examined by a mental health professional. I don't exactly know the difference between those two things, but uh, it's clearly something that matters uh, in the statute. The bill also tightens when a person can be court-ordered to undergo treatment. They must have a, quote, history of repeated non-adherence with mental health treatment, unquote, which either resulted in hospitalization twice in 48 hours or has caused or threatened serious harm to themselves or others. There's a lot more to this bill, too. It's kind of in, it's, it, this is another bill that's very much in the weeds, um, kind of about when hearings can occur and, and a few other things. But Ken Fleming is actually the main, the main chi- the chief sponsor of this bill, and he is joined on the GOP side by Danny Bentley, Kim Mosier, and Melinda Prutney. So, you know, Jasmine, this is Bill. Bill, you may have a little bit of an opinion on. Uh, do you know anything about uh, court-ordered uh, mental health treatments or, or how those are used in court at all? Yeah, so looking at the bill, it doesn't – this bill itself doesn't necessarily define evaluated versus examined, but my guess would be, like, the difference between those things. Like, to examine is, like, to observe someone, and ev- evaluated, I would think that you are – drawing conclusions from using validated tools and assessments. And so I think that maybe that's different in 
tools that are used um, by the mental health professional when meeting with the patient would be my guess with the difference in language in the bill. And then the other part of it, I think, expands who can be forced into court-ordered treatment. And and that part is is a little more complicated for me. Um, I, I do think it's a good idea to make those make treatment options available to more people but i have more complicated feelings about forcing expanding the amount of people who could be forced into treatment because that's often used um to force too many people or to force certain classes of people into treatment all right i read that exactly backwards of how you're uh interpreting it the way that it had been written before, basically anybody who's diagnosed with a serious mental illness or anybody who had been involuntarily hospitalized two times in the past uh, 24 months, basically the, any, any of those people could be given court-ordered mental health treatment. And now the difference is that they have to have a history of repeated non-adherence and has to have at least twice within the four, last 48 months been a significant factor in, in necessi- necessitating hospitalization or arrest, and also or within the last 24 months resulted in the act threat uh, or attempt of serious harm for self or others. So it actually, I think, tightens the definition. To make I it- see it as an expansion because involuntarily hospitalized the requirement before was involuntary hospitalization, not just prior mental health treatment. The new definition would just require non-adherence with mental health treatment plus, you know, those couple other things. And so that doesn't necessarily mean hospitalization. So I see someone who's been involuntarily hospitalized, that's going to be a smaller group of people than people who have just been to mental health treatment and have, maybe needed hospitalization or have had to be arrested and and those kind of things. So I see it as an expansion of who huh. can be. Yeah. I, I definitely think there are, I think that evaluate versus examine is definitely better language in the bill. And so um, I know that Judge Burke, who is um, a district court judge in Louisville, testified in committee on this bill, but I didn't get to hear the testimony. So I would be interested in in hearing more about what they envision this looking like. Right, right. Yeah, Uh, I think it's worth a little bit more uh, looking into, but of course uh, it has to pass the Senate before it goes anywhere, and you'll likely hear his testimony again in front of the Senate. So maybe we'll, we'll be tracking this as it makes its way through the legislature. Okay, so similar to, to Representative Wilner, um, Senators Ralph Alvarado or Senator Ralph Alvarado also had three bills that either passed or are slated to pass on Wednesday, and he was joined by uh, Senator Donald Douglas on two of them. You know, we've talked about Senator Alvarado before several times. Of course, he was Matt Bevin's running bait when he was running for re-election, uh, and we've actually talked a little bit about Donald Douglas as well. He's the newest senator, and he uh, was elected in a special election uh, just over this past year. He's a medical doctor, and he's the only uh, black senator on the Republican side. So here's the three bills that, that Ralph Alvarado helped pass. So 
SB 55. This bill clarifies what a primary stroke center is by changing the definition uh, to from primary stroke center to thrombectomy capable stroke center certification, unquote. The bill's chief sponsor is Donald Douglas, who, like Senator Alvarado, is a medical doctor, and this bill actually passed without any opposition. So probably just something clarifying something, uh, but something that they wanted to get out of the way. This is clearly something. It didn't have any opposition, so likely um, the, the Republicans made their case and were able to get the Democrats on board to be like, hey, this is important. This is something that needs to happen. I couldn't tell you what a thrombectomy-capable stroke center certification is or why it needed to be changed from primary stroke center, but it did. I also kind of feel like early in the session, um, Donald Douglas is a a senator who very clearly the Senate majority uh, likes and wants to see succeed, giving him some early wins uh, to kind of push through, you know, his, hey, I'm here and I matter. Uh, That, that I think, is probably what's, what's uh, behind a couple of these bills being passed. Um, and also, very clear, Senator Alvarado taking uh, Senator Douglas under his wing. Makes sense because they're both doctors. Uh, you know, they both share uh, a political ideology. They're both uh, non-white members of uh, the Senate majority. And, uh, you know, that that's probably, they probably have a lot in common. So I'm not too surprised to see those two working cl- together very closely. All right, Senate Bill 56, this bill widens the definition of opioid reversal drugs used by the state. So previously, the statutes actually referred directly to naloxone. And naloxone is the most common drug used to treat overdoses. But this this bill actually widens that to opioid antagonist, uh, which is to say that there are a class of drugs that the USDA approves um, to reverse the effects on opioid overdoses and that any of the drugs in that class can qualify where in statute previously we had referred directly to naloxone. Alvarado and Douglas teamed up on this one again, and, and it, it makes sense too because uh, the, the specific type of medicine that Senator Douglas practices is pain medicine. Um, so this is something he knows a lot about quite a bit. I, I, this is a good bill. I, you know, when people are writing these kind of bills and they don't have the expertise around the subject, they may write naloxone. But because that's referred to directly in statute, if there's other drugs in that class that might be cheaper, but just as effective, all of a sudden, you have to use naloxone because that's what actually is written in statute. So widening this, clarifying this makes a lot of sense and, and you know, probably something that's going to help uh, our bills or, or the way that we treat opioid overdoses and how to reimburse people for this because, you know, uh, the, the state made a big push to al- allow anybody to get access to these drugs and be able to kind of carry it around to treat overdoses you know, making it so that we are uh, doing as good a job and being as thorough in writing these bills, I think is probably a good thing. So, you know, good thing uh, Senator Douglas was there to, to push this type of, of legislation, I guess, uh, where it, it, it appeals or, you know, works directly with his expertise. So the last bill that Senator Alvarado worked on alone, and that's maybe just a little bit telling, is SB 11. So this bill is in extremely tedious and technical. I actually started writing out quite a bit about it and then deleted it because it was just far too boring. Uh, it, But it is important. <laughs> I think it is important. It changes several definitions used by the state for things like assisted living community, non-ambulatory, secured dementia care unit, and other things like that. So just very technical definitions about what is this when we refer to an assisted living community, what do we mean, and changing some of those things around, clarifying these things, making them a lot more detailed. So this bill actually passed, uh, and unlike SB 55, which passed without opposition, 
A couple of Democratic senators actually voted against this legislation. Karen Berg, who is also a medical doctor, she's a medical doctor on the Democratic side, she voted against it, and Reggie Thomas, who's a senator in Lexington, he voted against it. Ralph Alvarado is the chief sponsor, and he was joined by C.B. Embry and Robbie Mills uh, as sponsors on this legislation. One thing that's important to note is that Alvarado worked with several assisted living facility ventures. That's something that's been talked about quite a bit before. There's a lot of journalism about his role in some of these things, uh, and he practices medicine in that space specifically. While he probably knows a lot about that kind of medicine, and that's something we talked about with with Senator Douglas and the fact that he knows a lot about pain management medicaid or you know how that that treatment works, and he clarified the statute there, and that's true of uh, Senator Alvarado and um, his work with assisted living facilities. Um, the fact that he has a lot of business interests there too is potentially shady. Um, that he's changing some of these definitions. I, I don't know enough. That would be something that a we would have to do in a longer period of time than just like a couple of days after the bill is passed and you know, just a few weeks after the bill has even been uh, revealed um, be- because of how tedious and, um, you know, how how technical this bill is. Um, but, but that's something that so- certainly I think maybe somebody should do some analysis on, something that's maybe worthwhile uh, to look into a little deeper. All right, so so those were kind of the bills I wanted to highlight. Obviously, Senators Alvarado and Douglas, as along with Representative Wilner, have worked pretty hard to get their bills passed early in the session. There were a few more bills that also passed, uh, but but you know I I I don't know I didn't really uh, look into those too deeply uh, because they've only really passed one chamber, and I just kind of want to talk about stuff that had made its way through. A few other things kind of made news today. There was a bill uh, that was you know I I think Joe Sonk of the Courier Journal flagged that would have made things like the bail project illegal. I think it made it so that a nonprofit can't pay for someone's bail. Did you see this bill uh, pop up today, Jasmine? Yeah, I did. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I it's a little so I I'm not too surprised, but it is a little interesting how quickly in just a few years we've gone from like Republicans are now more open to, you know, criminal justice reform to, you know, now we're making it or you know, Republicans are are all in on comprehensive bail, bail reform legislation to now Republicans are trying to make it so that it's even harder for people to make bail even as it's uh written today so you know uh i don't know it's really disappointing very clearly a few like kind of outliers and um unfortunate situations uh that have made its way into like the media and like the wave three troubleshooter are really guiding our public policy which is probably not the way we should do it yeah and clearly it shows you know who they who they believe you know shouldn't be able to post their bail because someone with money who's allegedly done something dangerous or violent they can still get out but someone who can only get out by means of charity cannot so yep yeah yep. hopefully that doesn't go anywhere um if it does we'll certainly talk more about it we'll see it all right jasmine tell us about uh adrian wallace running for mayor of lexington all right so with all the redistricting in the start of the session we haven't had a chance to talk about a new challenger in the Lexington mayoral race, even though this happened a few weeks ago. Um, so Adrian Wallace has filed in the race. He is the former president of the Lexington Fayette NAACP. Um, he now serves on the state NAACP political action committee, and he's been on other NAACP committees as well. Um, so 
He was born and raised in Lexington, and he's the president and CEO of the Bishop and Chase Foundation, which is a community development corporation. Um, he's also worked for Community Ventures and Employment Solutions, two nonprofits, and he's served on Lexington's Homeless Intervention and Prevention Board. He's a community chaplain with the Lexington Police Department, and Honestly, he's just served on a ton of various boards and committees in Lexington. He ran for city council in Lexington in 2018. So he ran for um, one of three at-large seats and he finished in fourth place. So um, he did not win a seat on Lexington city council. And so, you know, kind of what he has said about why he's running. He said that Linda Gordon has not done enough to address Poverty, homelessness in Lexington, affordable housing, and rising homicide rates. And Mayor Gordon has put funding towards um, things like rental assistance, housing first initiatives, and shelters. But Adrian Wallace said that, you know, what what is going towards those initiatives isn't enough. And some of it is just for... He said, like, for council pet projects, um, that a lot more needs to be done to address homelessness and that a lot of funding needs to be going towards strengthening low-income neighborhoods and youth prevention programs, that we need to be um, addressing some of these root cause issues to prevent poverty and crime and things like that. Um, so now the field is Mayor Gorton. Adrian Wallace, um, Councilman David Kloiber, who we talked about, I guess it's been a couple months now um, since he joined the race. And then William Wyman has also filed in the race. Um, he also ran in 2018 and only got 0.6% of the vote in the primary. Um, so I don't know if he is like a serious challenger <laughs> in the race or not. Yeah. And so... Um, that's the field we have right now. So I think that, you know, Adrian Wallace may be, um, you know, the the Lexington mayor race is, is a nonpartisan race. You know, it's not Democrat Republican. It's not a Democratic primary. It's nonpartisan. Um, but I think that Adrian Wallace is probably the progressive challenger in the race that's going to be like running kind of to the left of, of Mayor Gorton. Um, and so... Robert, what, so what do you think this does to shake up the mayoral race in Lexington? Yeah, you know, you mentioned Adrian Wallace's uh, being somebody who ran for, you know, council at large, which is, it, it's not too much different than running for mayor in Lexington. Uh, you're running in the whole city. Um, you're, you're campaigning really hard everywhere in town. Um, so it, he's somebody that's run in all of Fayette County already. Um, mm -hmm. And he's pretty serious. He came in fourth, which is really respectable. Uh, Steve Kay, who's the vice mayor there in Lexington now, I, I remember he, he didn't finish top three uh, several times before he ran, he ended up. Now he's, you know, the top finisher on a regular basis. So, you know, uh, th that's, that's nothing to shake a stick at. So, you know, he's, you know, somebody that I've heard of, somebody who's been active statewide and somebody that a lot of people pay attention to. So I do think it's a pretty serious challenge to Mayor Gordon. He's kind of the person, I think, uh, you know, I don't know uh, David Kloiber nearly as much. Um, learned a little bit about him when I was researching that piece. But, you know, I think that Adrian Wallace probably presents a little bit more of a bigger name. Um, not necessarily, a, you know, I don't want to say more serious candidate, but definitely somebody I think more of Lexington has probably heard of. 
Um, so, you know, mm-hmm. I, I think that it's probably a, this, this is, this is a field. This is a real field. Uh, it's not going to be just Mayor Gorton, you know, uh, running against token opposition. I think she's going to have some real opposition. I, I think she should be the favorite. She's, I, I, th- I think she's pretty popular there in Lexington, uh, but I, I think like among the people who pay the closest attention, um, they're, they're seeing, um, a, a real, a real amount of opposition, uh, kind of emerge. So we'll, we'll see what happens. Obviously, Adrian Wallace and David Kluber have an uphill battle um, if they want to become the mayor this time. Uh, but, you know, uh, definitely a race to be paying attention to. Yeah, I agree. And, you know, I haven't lived in Lexington in seven years and I've heard of Adrian Wallace. And so I think he's someone who's really involved in the community in Lexington, involved in a lot of different parts of the community. And so um, I think it's is going to be really interesting now. Yeah. Uh, when you say, you know, you haven't lived in Lexington in seven years, it made me add it up. And it has been 11. Oh, it's, it's been like almost a, yeah. It's, it's 11 years. a decade. I, it's wow. crazy. It's crazy. Uh, at some point, I'll have lived in Louisville longer the second time than the first time. We're only about halfway there now, though. So uh, anyways. <laughs> uh, all right. Uh, let's talk about COVID and then get to our interview with Derek Pinwell. All right, so the the Omicron surge continues to slam Kentucky extremely hard. Last week, records were set nearly every day regarding the increasing trend in new cases. In the seven-day average, Kentucky is now over 10,000 cases per day in the seven-day moving average. That's more than double the highest number during the Delta wave. So, like, you know, the the teeth of the Delta wave, we are twice as high as that in, in terms of case counts. So it does seem like Louisville, Lexington, Northern Kentucky, and the other places where Omicron kind of came first, uh, cases in those places look like they might have peaked and might be coming back down. So Louisville actually had slightly fewer cases last week when compared to the week before. And Lexington's, if you depending on where you start your week, they might have been coming down for two weeks. So, you know, closer to closer to two weeks that we've seen a decline in Lexington. So lots of other counties, though, across the state have started crossing the 200 cases per 100,000 population threshold, which is um, kind of something we saw in those bigger counties several weeks ago. So in addition to Louisville, Lexington, and Northern Kentucky, and Bowling Green, and Owensboro, which are places that we've identified as, as crossing that threshold a couple weeks ago, um, a few more of the ring counties around Louisville and Lexington more rural and small city areas like Muhlenberg County, Simpson County, Allen County, Powell County, Trimble County, McCracken County, Marshall County, Henderson County, and Greenham County are all now above 200 cases this week. So, you know, it, what, the way that Omicron has moved, it looks like it started started in these urban areas, started in Louisville and Lexington, started in northern Kentucky. Cases just skyrocketed here several weeks ago while they remained like flat or slightly rising in, in some of these other counties. Now the bigger counties have leveled off, maybe have started coming down where – our smaller counties are now seeing a significant run up, uh, uh, an increase. Uh, Omicron is definitely good getting to those places now. So that's kind of how you can think about our overall case counts and how they may be changing over time. In terms of deaths, they are still very steady. Um, about three weeks into the Omicron surge, we're still seeing about uh, we're still seeing below 30 deaths per day, which is kind of where we've been since coming down out of the Delta peak. Jasmine, one of the things that I track is the ratio of cases per day to deaths per day. Um, and w- when you compare the ratio between those two numbers, we are lower than we've ever been in the pandemic. 
uh, even in the middle of the summer when we were seeing low cases and really low deaths, um, we are seeing, you know, obviously really high de- uh, cases and, and moderate deaths. So that ratio is actually very, very low right now. Our vaccination rate still sits at about 2,500 people getting vaccinated per day. So overall, 63.6% of Kentuckians have at least one shot of the vaccine, and and we're steadily climbing. About a half percent of Kentucky's population gets newly vaccinated each week. 55% of Kentuckians have two vaccinations, which that's that's pretty good, I guess. Uh, And and 21% of everybody has a booster. Uh, You know, those numbers may seem a little bit low, but it's worth noting that among adults, 75% of Kentuckians have at least one vaccine, 65% have two, and 27% have three. So, you know, if you talk about the people who most need the vaccine, so the older you get, the more at risk you are, you know, we're at we're at a, a much higher number when you're looking at just adults. So that's something to know with our vaccination efforts. Hospitalizations, which is, of course, the metric that I've been tracking the most closely, they are slightly below 2,300 per day. That's only about 300 below where we were during the Delta peak. And right now, we might actually be peaking. If you look at the data and how the increases worked, we definitely seem like we're, we're topping out. It's too early to tell. That could definitely start to go up again. Um, but yeah, I, I mean, the, the increase has started decreasing. Uh, ICU utilization is at 420. That's down, actually down from a high of 423 a couple days ago. So we are actually starting to see that number come down potentially. It could increase again. That could just be like a kink in the data, maybe having to do with Martin Luther King Day or something, and it could increase again, but it might have peaked already. But where we are at 420, um, we are not above where we were during the original COVID wave from last winter. It's worth noting that while our hospital utilization is not too different from from previous waves, our overall hospitalization is pretty similar to where we were during the Delta wave, and our ICU utilization is pretty close to where we were during the winter surge, the case numbers are astronomically higher. We are at more than double the number of cases of COVID going on right now than we had during either one of those surges. So our experience does seem to indicate that Omicron is a milder variant, but just like we thought would happen, the extreme number of cases, double the amount we had, is pushing up utilization in that hospital considerably. Um, you know, But if we had the same rate of hospitalizations in Omicron that we did in Delta or the original COVID, you know, we would be at a breaking point. Our hospitals would be falling apart right now. Luckily, that doesn't seem to be the case. So our case numbers are likely to continue to increase for at least another week or so, maybe even longer than that. The rate at which our cases have increased has fallen significantly. So there was actually a little blip in the weekend, and and we actually went up again, but we are coming down. The increase is decreasing. Uh, If you know your calculus, the first derivative is, is going down quite a bit. Of course, anything can happen. We could see another acceleration in our growth rates. But if our trend does hold, cases should you know, start coming down again in the near future. However, coming down means that case numbers will still be near the peak for several weeks after that. So while you're being vigilant and waiting for these cases to come down, know that we aren't going to be anywhere close to safe in the next you know, probably month or so. So just hold on. Uh, be vigilant as be as vigilant as you can and and be as safe as you're able to be jasmine uh any covid anecdotes for us this week um for an in-person thing that i have to attend this weekend i have to be vaccinated masked and show 
proof of a negative rapid test, and I have no idea where to get a rapid test. Yeah, yeah. You're, I'm going to let you borrow one. That's what I, I don't borrow. You can't borrow one. I'm going to let you have one. I've, we've got some extras. Uh, we can do that. But, but yeah, I, I have had several people I know catch COVID, people who've been extremely careful during most of the pandemic, uh, you know, definitely people who got vaccinated, got boosted, did all the stuff. Um, but you know, Omicron's everywhere and it's hitting everybody. Uh, luckily everybody I know who's had a case, it's basically just been like the flu took a few days off work. Um, we're able to get back to work pretty quickly. Um, but yeah, it, it definitely is, is hitting a lot of people I'm close to right now. Um, but I am, I, I, I mean, I do feel just so much better about it right now, even though people are catching it than I did at the beginning of this pandemic, mm-hmm. because, you know, we have tools, we have vaccines, we have tests. Uh, I do feel better right now. I, I wouldn't feel as bad getting it right now as I would have at the beginning of the pandemic. Uh, but it doesn't mean I want to, and it doesn't mean I'm being any less vigilant. So definitely still locking stuff down much, much more than we were a few months ago. Uh, definitely uh, using judicious judgment when we're thinking about whether or not we're going to leave the house or invite people over. So yeah, that's kind of where we're at with it. Um, yeah, there, there you go. All right, uh, that's it for this part of the show. Let's get to our interview with Derek Pinwell. Derek Pinwell is a candidate for the Kentucky House in either the 36th or the 31st District. In addition, he is the pastor at Douglas Boulevard Christian Church and an author. Reverend Pinwell filed to run for office in 2021 in District 36, but has been redrawn into District 31 in the maps passed by the legislature. This is Reverend Pinwell's first public run, first run for public office. So, Derek Pinwell, welcome to my Old Kentucky podcast. Well, thank you for having me. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, we're very excited to have you. So, you know, I guess the per- first place to start with uh, is kind of like why why are we do why are you doing this? Uh, why why did you decide that you wanted to run for office? And and kind of what do you believe you'll be able to accomplish in public service uh, if you win this seat that you that you can't do now? Well, the reason, I mean, the sort of initiating reason was that somebody asked me would I consider it, and um, I said, well. Yeah, I, um, I consider it, and I gave it some thought. Uh, the fact that I've lived in this sort of activist life as a pastor for so long uh, meant that I, I mean, I have some real familiarity with some of the issues of justice and so forth that, that happen around us. So uh, the the opportunity to sort of get back into a more defining role in how those things play out. Uh, policy-wise, uh, felt like a really useful thing for me to be able to do. I come from a, a family of uh, ministers and, and so forth, and missionaries. I, my grandparents, uh, my mom's mom and dad moved to Mexico in 1964 and started a children's home. And I spent a lot of my, my growing up years uh, down there watching uh, people I consider to be heroes uh, look out for folks whose parents no longer wanted them or couldn't no longer afford them. And, uh, and I realized that there are, that there are people in the world who make a difference. Um, and I have always wanted to be one of those kind of people. Uh, in terms of what, what do I hope to, what do I think I can accomplish? Um, you know, that's in a legislature that's dominated by uh, the other party the possibilities are 
somewhat limited. <laughs> but what I hope to be able to do is to help Kentuckians understand what's going on in our politics by using a different moral frame than we're used to seeing in politics. And what I mean by that is because Republicans have been so good at messaging for so long now, it's kind of a commonplace to assume that Christian equals Republican and that morality is the exclusive preserve of the right wing. And unfortunately for all of us, I think Republicans have been effective at preaching a Christian morality that barely even nods its head when it passes Jesus on the street. So what I would like to be able to do is to offer what I, what I take to be uh, a more faithful reading of uh, what it means to live um, as a moral human being in a world uh, that is designed to have people live together in close proximity to each other. Yeah, we'll definitely get more into the connections between um, your faith and, and your politics uh, here shortly. Uh, but just kind of about the politics of the situation, you're in kind sure. of this interesting spot where you're probably experiencing a little bit of whiplash with the new maps that the Republican Party has drawn. So, you know, you got into this race kind of, I guess, in the middle of last year. And, and you know, I've, I've known that you're running mm -hmm. for quite a while here. Uh, and, and, you know, you've been running for the, you know, district uh, 36 for quite a while. And now all of a sudden you're in a new district. And, and, you know, if these maps become law, that's where you're at. Unless, you know, of course, the courts intervene. So tell us kind of how you feel right now about, uh, you know, not really knowing what district you, you're running in and, and kind of, uh, you know, uh, trying to adjust to the reality of where you might be in the next uh, in the next little bit here. I mean, that's that really is the, the sort of pressing issue right now for me and for a lot of people, um, because you're right. I mean, I got in thinking that I was going to be running in the 36th district, and I may still. It just depends on, on what happens. Um, but then I, uh, you know, I wake up to find at the first of the year that um, – my new district has been drawn six houses away from my house to um and so it's obviously pretty intentional i mean i got into all of this the politics part of it because i thought that people where i live deserve representation in the legislature that believes in such controversial things as mm, science and history um, you know, they deserve legislators, I think, who are firmly rooted in reality rather than in conspiracy. So whichever district I wind up in, it really doesn't matter because that's all that, that none of that changes um, as far as, you know, the, the logistics around it. There's a lot uh, that's still up in the air. And so I'm I'm just trying to keep my nose to the grindstone and uh, do what I need to do uh, to be an effective candidate wherever I am, because that's what's really important to me. Sure, absolutely. Uh, well, you know, if you do end up in, in District 31, you know, at least compared to how the gubernatorial election was run in, in 2019 or, you know, how the congressional or Senate race was run in 2020, um, that's actually probably a little better district for a Democrat like yourself than District 36. Um, yes. which which was definitely a tougher district and one that ha is probably going to remain uh, in Republican hands uh, going forward, you know, potentially. Mm -hmm. You know, now it looks like you may potentially face or probably likely will face a Democratic primary, which may not have been part of your calculus before. 
So tell us kind of how, you know, both the political makeup of the new district and the fact that you may be running two races instead of just one uh, is something you're thinking about right now. Well, I mean, you're right to point out that the 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 31st district, the new district, as it's been drawn, is is more favorable um, to me and to Democrats in general. But you know, I, I mean, look, I I'm running a campaign whose focus isn't really right or left. I'm really running as Reverend William Barber is fond of saying, because this is about right and wrong. Um, I'm not just running against somebody. I'm running to make sure that real Kentuckians uh, have their values represented in Frankfurt. So, you know, I mean, the values like compassion and cooperation, equal access for everybody, protection of the vulnerable and the dispossessed. So the fact that it looks like there will probably be a primary um, it, it means, practically speaking, that I'll be a little bit more busy this winter than I would have been otherwise, um, because the schedule gets sort of uh, telescoped uh, with a primary. But uh, the, the issues are all still the same for me, and it's all about uh, being the kind of person in Frankfurt that I think uh, the people in my district deserve to have represent them somebody that they can uh that they can believe in that they can uh, that they can trust so lastly on this topic you know you made the decision to run for house of course last year like we talked about and you've been running for a while um and i'm, I'm sure you don't think that that time is totally wasted so kind of talk to us a little bit about how you can apply some of the lessons you've learned in the race so far to running even if the map is dis- different no, that, that's a good question, because um, the way it's been uh, mapped out now, um, the, the precinct that I live in is obviously included in the new map, and I've canvassed that already as part of the work that I did in the fall for the 36th district, so that none of that work is wasted. It's still there. It's just the number changes. Um, and, and one of the things that I've learned, I think, along the way is that um, there really are a lot of people who are, they're really concerned about where we are right now, uh, both as a state and as a country. I want to, to bring some sense of stability and integrity to a position that often, I think, winds up being something that people just get disgusted with. I mean, politicians, right? They're all you know, whatever people say they are. Uh, and they, des- they deserve uh, to feel like they have somebody who, who cares about the things that they care about. And that's what I'm trying to focus on. So, yeah, I don't think it's wasted. Um, I, got to, I got to raise some money. And um, as of right now, that money is, is uh, it looks like it's, we're, gonna have to, we're not going to have to return it. Um, we'll see. There's a bill on the floor uh, saying that if you raised money in one district, they changed you out of that district, that you'd be able to keep it without having to refund it. So that's that's at least one thing that seems a little bit easier. Yeah, I think that bill would definitely be good news for you. Um, so switching gears a little bit, we do want to get a little bit deeper into your experience as a minister. Most candidates for political office on both sides of the aisle 
you know, are religious in one way or another, but not many on the Democratic side are Christian ministers. So tell us about the connections between your faith and your politics and how they both inform one another. Well, I, I, I like to say, you know, to people who, um, who question that, uh, you know, I, I, I say, I'm, of course I'm uh, political. I'm, I'm trying to follow Jesus, who was, I think, eminently political uh, in challenging the injustice of the ancient Near Eastern uh, life under Roman imperialism. The, the, the way that I understand my own life and my own relationship to the world I live in which is really what politics is about, is how we live together, how we organize ourselves and our, and our common life and the resources that we share to be able to live together equitably with justice and with peace and that, and that kind of stuff. And I think that that's immediately relevant to the life that I try to lead as a pastor in which uh, what I say to people is, uh, you know, I get paid to tell the truth for a living. That's, that's really sort of distilled to its essence what pastors are supposed to be about. And I, and I think that in our, in our politics at present, that's something that we really desperately need are people who are willing to speak truthfully about the ways in which we failed one another and the ways in which our policy have too often sort of uh, privileged one set of people over another. And... Uh, this is a situation that, by my reading of uh, the Christian and Hebrew scriptures, something that God is not happy about. <laughs> that that uh, Jesus and God are pretty clear about the kind of world that uh, they desire and that they that they desire for us to help participate in and to build. Yeah, I think. You know, one of the ways that Republicans have, you know, con have been able to connect themselves with religion in previous decades was by, you know, taking conservative stands on issues like gay marriage and abortion, which were held by conservative evangelicals and Catholics. And, of course, not all Christians hold those same cultural beliefs. So um, can you tell us a little bit more about, you know, you, you talked about how Jesus is political, but can you tell us a little bit more about how you respond to people um, who might be skeptical about your stance on some of those cultural or social issues? Yeah, I mean, what I say is, look, um, progressives, Christians, uh, love the Bible. Uh, we actually really love the Bible. We just refuse to treat it as though it's a set of timeless golden tablets that say all need, that needs to be said once and for all about everything of importance. See, I, this is what I think people don't quite get, and that is that progressive Christians aren't progressive in spite of the Bible, uh, but because of it. Like, we don't pursue justice for LGBTQ people because we haven't read Scripture, but precisely because we have. Mm -hmm. And in the arc of the narrative of God's interaction with humanity, Progressive Christians find a radical expansiveness, a kind of urgent desire to broaden the embrace of God's hospitality. So, so, so that it includes those whom the religious big shots are always, apparent, seem to be kicking to the sidelines. Uh, the, way, the, way I, the way I would like to, to say it is to, it's time for us to turn the tables, right? 
it seems to me that the burden of proof ought to be on uh, on the religious right. Like, like I'd like to see a fundamentalist defense from Scripture of such policies as cutting taxes for people who already have enough for several lifetimes. I mean, how do you literally read the prophets or the gospels and come away thinking that protecting the ability to purchase another yacht or a vacation home at the expense of those who are just struggling, struggling to feed their children. How do you figure that that's something that Christians ought to have a stake in? I mean, I mean, things like, uh, I'd like to see the biblical rationalization of the assertion that marriage equality is more urgent danger to the institution of marriage than the, per the pervasiveness of heterosexual divorce. There's just so many things that um, if you read if you read the Bible and you read the story of how it is that Jesus relates to the world, um, it seems to me really impossible to get to the end of that and say, you yeah, know, apparently uh, I've read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and so forth, and and I'm pretty sure now that God just wants us all to be rich and to care only about the stuff that matters to us and our family. I mean, that, that, that seems to me to be a real failing of the religious right. Uh, they've, they've in, in many ways, given people license to be, to, to, to rationalize their own selfishness, mm -hmm. right? Um, yeah. And, and, I, and I, I think that that's, I think that that really sort of flies in the face of everything that the Bible's about. It, it just, it, 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 it confounds me that somebody can uh, stand up and say, uh, speak with a kind of meanness about immigrants or Muslims or um, LGBTQ people or, I mean, whoever, um, and, 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 and then also say, um, but, you know, Jesus is, is my co-pilot or whatever. I, I, I just find that uh, outrageous. Yeah, I definitely appreciate you saying that. Um, when I was 18 and showed up at a campus ministry in college, I would tell people that I was a progressive, like because of my faith and, and they like didn't take that super well. <laughs> and I think Robert did the same thing. <laughs> yeah, it's just hard for them. I, and, and that really is because Republicans are just have been so good at um, kind of co-opting religious language mm -hmm. um, that that and and frankly progressives and liberals have have sort of ceded the field uh to them and and i think that's terribly unfortunate i mean think think about the the redistricting uh maps themselves right uh, from what i can tell the, the, these maps amount to you know the republicans trying to figure out how to how badly you know they can screw women and black people without running afoul of the law. I mean, it's a, it's a sort of moral calculus that that's only concerned with whether or not you can, you'll get caught. Right. And, and, and I don't, I don't see how that squares with the Jesus um, that they claim so publicly uh, to follow. Yeah. Yeah. Getting, getting caught is, is definitely going to happen. It's, it's kind of more along the lines of whether or not they're going to get in trouble. Uh, oh well, yeah, right. No, that's right. <laughs> Very that's clearly, right. they're going to get caught, and that's the that's been one of the things that I think might have changed over the past ten years or so. Is yeah, you know, it's all kind of out in the open now. Um, we what we're doing and what we're actually supporting. It's being able to convince people that we're doing something wrong. 
um, or that what is wrong is actually right uh, is it's been kind of an interesting interesting thing to watch happen. Um, it's pretty Orwellian. Yeah, <laughs> it's very true. So, you know, the, the General Assembly is going on right now, and this is the group or the body that, that you're seeking to join here next year, mm-hmm. potentially. Um, so talk to us a little bit about what issues, you know, you hope get addressed this session. What are some things that are on the table or that you hope are on the table that, that uh, might be addressed by the General Assembly? And, and what issues do you think or worry are going to be addressed um, and kind of where, where do you stand on, on some of those things? Yeah, um, I mean, in terms of the things that I hope, things that I hope to see addressed, things like, um, you know, well, there's HB 225 uh, that's been put forward about, you know, legalization of marijuana. I mean, it, that seems to me to be a, uh, a fairly uh, popular um, uh, stance to take. But it's one, I think, that's under under uh, girded by, um, you know, some real moral and economic sense. I mean, the fact that it helps people um, who are, uh, who have problems with opiates, for example, is a, um, to get off them is, is that's a moral issue. The, the issue of us uh, clogging up the, the legal system with, you know, uh, these nonviolent uh, drug offenders uh, makes just makes no real good sense either politically or practically. So that's the, you know that's one I think that we could do. And and short of that, you know, House Bill one thirty six, which is is trying to get medical marijuana legalized. Um, I mean, there's there are little things that I think people. The fact that I, I work in a church that houses uh, Feed Louisville. And out of our church kitchen and in cooperation with some other area restaurants, we feed about 500 houseless people a day. Um, and so I'm aware of some of the issues that they have to face, one of which is if they want to get a, a, a driver's license, they have to have a, uh, an address, a physical address and so forth. And there's a, there's a bill um, that's been put forward that would, would give them an exemption uh, from having to have a physical address, they could have a letter from a nonprofit or something like this. Um, I mean, there's all kinds of the the HB 11 and 15 on, uh, which are essentially the sort of perennial fairness laws, which would uh, allow for um, LGBTQ people not to be discriminated in 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 their employment or in uh, housing or in public accommodations. I think that's that's something I'd really love to see us pass. We've been working on it for a long time. Um, th- those are some of the things that I, I, I really would like to see. Um, the ban the box uh, thing for job applications where you don't have to put down your criminal record. I think that's a good. I think that's a good thing. It's a it's a, a helpful thing for people who are trying to sort of put their past behind them. In terms of um, in terms of things that I think are going to get, you know, the things that are really going to get addressed, um, obviously there's, you know, there's issues about critical race theory and, um, you know, these these uh, bills about trying to, uh, you know, f- make it illegal to require disclosure of your immunization status or something like this. 
and that's I think those are those are bad. It's bad public health policy. It's just it's bad democracy, frankly. Um, and, and there's one that just you know I just saw today about uh, House House Bill three thirteen, which is going to try to prohibit nonprofits from paying bail for people, cash bail. Now that's I mean that's a moral issue that that essentially sets up a two tier system in which people who have privilege and money get to use the legal system in one way and everybody else is just you know out of luck i i think that's a real problem and i hope that that's one that gets shot down pretty pretty effectively or you know these these useless things like the, the house bill 231 is fighting sanctuary cities and man, essentially deputizing law enforcement as sort of junior ice officers those are ones that um, i'm afraid are anything i think that winds up creating some kind of wedge culturally it's a it's a cultural uh flashpoint a hot button issue and it's it's designed primarily to to whip up a certain part of the population and to make them angry and fearful. And we know that that's a great motivator and gets them to the ballot box. But I, but I, but I think it just, it's really um, paternalistic and patronizing. Uh, it's, it essentially says people just are, are, are not really smart enough to think these things through on their own. I, th those are some of the things that, that, I, that I'm thinking about. All right, before we let you go, you know, tell our listeners how they can get in touch with your campaign. Uh, you can you can go to the campaign website, which is uh, DerekForKentucky.com, uh, D-E-R-E-K-F-O-R, Kentucky.com. Uh, my Twitter handle is at, and this is odd um, <laughs> for most people, uh, it's uh, at R-E-S. E U D A I M O N. Um, that's my Twitter handle. And you can find me on Facebook all over the place, I suppose. All right. Well, thank you very much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me. I'm, I'm, I'm honored to have been asked. Jasmine, how can people get a hold of us? They can find us on Twitter and Instagram at my old pod. They can like our Facebook page and listen to our podcast on the podcast app of their choice. We also have a newsletter that comes out on Fridays. You can subscribe to it at tinyletter.com slash my old Kentucky newsletter. And we have a Patreon page where you can support what we're doing for as little as a dollar a month. You can do that at patreon.com slash my old Kentucky podcast. And last but not least, we are part of the Dimcast Network. All right, everybody. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week. <laughs>